It amuses me to have this in the house. Every time I notice it, I'm reminded that if I wanted half the world to think I was mad, I could call myself Sir Ian Chesterton, knighted by Richard the Lionheart himself over 700 years ago. <laughs> Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this iconic show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're once again time-traveling, this time back to the second season of the show, to catch up on the other lost story that we didn't cover originally. This time, it's the half-lost story, The Crusade. I'm your host, and it didn't go so well when I tried to marry my sister off to my greatest enemy. <laughs> no, it probably doesn't. Generally go away. <laughs> yeah, my co-host is Guy, who way back in the day was made a knight of the city of Akron. <laughs> yeah, the benefits are pretty good, actually. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, you know, we're doing this out of sequence because we were not originally covering the reconstructions, and now we're doing that. And uh, so we had to put ourselves back because we recorded, you know, our first season a long time ago for us, and... It really shocks me when I see that this story was preceded by Web Planet. <laughs> <laughs> and Barbara alludes to that in the story. Uh, yeah, I know, that in a really bizarre sequence, yeah. And you can't, I mean, the contrast, right? I mean, this is a very Shakespearean story with amazing actors <laughs> who were accomplished then and went on to win huge awards and everything else. I mean, these are, you know, this is, this is a true BBC, you know, production and the web planet was, you know, ants and bees. (laughs) Dancing bees, no less. (laughs) Miming bees, I guess I would even say. (laughs) Yeah. So kind of a shock. Also, it, it's subtle, but it's the first Doctor Who story with black actors. And unfortunately, they're only in the background and they don't talk. And appara- and they're never in a scene with William Hartnell, who apparently had an issue with this. So much as we love William Hartnell, well, he, um, he had some you know, old-fashioned so, ideas. So he had an issue with, with being in a scene with the black actor. Yeah, that's... that's issues of being left out of a scene. No, right, right. Okay. And I mean, he was an old-style sort of, you know, conservative guy. Uh, now... I didn't see direct things about this, but in my reading on it, you know, just the implication was that. But uh, but it was written by a guy named David Whitaker, and they wanted him to do it in particular because they were impressed by his ability to do Shakespeare-style writing, and that's definitely what he did here. I actually had one point where I there was a phrase used. They it's if I remember right, it's a warrior type talking about the men who are lying abed while he's off doing the fighting. And that's um, lifted from a, uh, uh, I'm thinking it's Henry V, the St. Crispin's Day speech, where mm-hmm. they talk about men lying abed in London will hold their manhood cheap. And I don't even know anything about Shakespeare. <laughs> but if I could catch that, then, uh, 
Yeah, I guess he's he's at least trying to do Shakespeare. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we may have some things coming up eventually that'll get hopefully get you a little more familiar. And yeah, lots of amazing cast, and we'll talk about the cast as we go along, so many of whom did other Doctor Who things as well as having these distinguished careers. The other thing I'm going to say, and I know, I'm, you know, I promised a long time ago not to talk about this being a children's show, but oh my God, this is dark. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are points in here where I'm going to say, I can't, I mean, I, you know, I'm a very like, let kids get exposed to whatever, it's good for them. I don't think if I had kids that I would show them this show, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of really <laughs> serious stuff in here. We'll get to that. Yeah, there's a, there's a character who turns out to be kind of a jovial, affable character who starts off by uh, <laughs> uh, planning to torture one of our characters, mm-hmm. so, or, you know, one of the TARDIS crew. So Yeah, it uh, has all kinds of dark stuff, sure. Yeah, and speaking of which, I'll, I'll say, you know, you have, of course— the thing here of people portraying Arabs and kind of doing a form of, I don't know, whatever you'd call it there, kind of a kind of blackface. They used to call it blacking up. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that does stand out about the story is that for the most part, they're actually uh, don't treat people stereotypically, right? And the case you're talking about is we get there, they start out by treating them stereotypically, but then they kind of twist it. So that's interesting. So, you know, you mm-hmm. had a lot of British stuff, especially back in those days, that was pretty retro. One of the films I would love to talk about sometime, you know, along with our other 200 things, is the film Zulu, <laughs> which was a British oh, film. Oh, yeah, Rourke Strift, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was the uh, first film bad. with... Um, was it Michael Caine? Yes, it's it was the first film with Michael Caine, yeah. Which is amazing, because he actually was like in his 30s. I mean, he didn't break into film until relatively late. And huh. that film totally stands up today, and... Unlike other representations in British media at the time, it, it treated the Zulus as, you know, serious people mm-hmm. and and wasn't stereotypical in part because they, they actually got real, you know, Zulus to come and, and portray those things. So, oh, you know, yeah, know you that. had these occasional things popping up. But okay, <clears throat> let's huh. get to this story. And our first episode is The Lion. The lion, and I, I have to say, I got the uh, long end of the stick on this uh, this podcast because I got both the live action episodes that survived, um, and that was just, I think, the luck of the draw. I mean, we usually alternate. Like if if you did the first episode and I did the second episode, then on the next podcast, then we reverse that. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's. Uh, I got to watch the live, well, I watched all four of the episodes, but uh, I got to comment on the episodes with live action, which uh, will not accrue any benefits to the listeners because I (laughs) didn't really comment on the live action a whole lot or don't intend to, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, it starts off with uh, an introduction by an aging Ian, which I must assume was added after... The fact, you know, it must be something he recorded like in the oh, 80s yeah, or decades 90s later, or something. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it is actually, I, I can't remember the actor's name, but William he, Russell. He's William Russell, okay. So it's actually him and actually aged, and he's, he's reminiscing in the character of Ian, mm-hmm. talking about this knight's armor that he got. 
long after returning to England, and in memory of his time as a knight of Jaffa, and uh, he ends up his little clip saying, let me tell you about it. And then the the episode, as it actually broadcast, begins. So I'm not sure when and where that was inserted along the way, but it was cute. It was neat to see him. Well, you know, over the years, uh, especially for the missing ones, the actors would do, you know, linking narration. We've talked about before, et cetera. You know, they would do different things to kind of help out with these mm, missing right. stories. And I think this is one of those. And we see a group of English crusaders gathered. I think we end up seeing about four of them in this little, I don't know, like a clearing in the woods or something. They're they're talking about where they are right now. There's danger from Saracens, and they're a good distance from Jaffa, which is the nearest city. So we start off, we see two guys traveling in the woods. Um, we'll find soon enough that they're Englishmen, and there are some sneaky foreigner types hiding behind the trees, lurking and following them, uh, just as the TARDIS arrives nearby in the woods. And we'll find out that King Richard himself, uh, who led the crusade, I believe this was the first crusade, if I'm not mistaken, but he is one of these people who's talking. He's the lighter-haired guy. Um, And that plays a minor role in the stuff to come. Right, Richard is played by Julian Glover, who, as I mentioned before, is one of those who, he already was a major actor, so he's probably the most prominent actor at this point who'd been in Doctor Who, and he would go yeah. on to have a massive career and win all sorts of awards and, and everything, so there was quite a coup for them to have him in this, and, and he really pulls it off, right? I mean, he um, he is that sort of classic oh, yeah. Shakespearean actor who brings that to his, his kingship. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, he's uh, he's good. Then we see all four crew of the TARDIS, who at this point in the series were the Doctor, Ian and Barbara, and Vicky. Uh, so so right now, the only person who wasn't in the original crew is uh, Susan is gone now. Um, they're all looking around in the woods here where they've materialized. And Barbara doesn't get very far before she's captured by these Saracens. Which, by the way, is going to keep happening in this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the crew as a whole doesn't seem to have a whole lot of agency in this story. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, of... Barbara gets captured three times, four times. I don't know. We'll see as we get there. Yeah. Yeah. She's, uh, she's especially got a bad deal this time around. <laughs> so, while she's being captured, the other three are distracted. Um and they defeat one Saracen, but while they're doing that, the Saracen who got Barbara is tying her up. Um, and there are sounds of combat nearby, and we see one Englishman die, and then we see another Englishman die. And this will play a minor part later on because it will harden the king's heart against the Saracens more mm. than it might otherwise be. And the Saracens capture a person who believe they who they believe is King Malik Rik. And Malik is Arabic, I guess, for king. So literally, it's King Rick, And that was how he was referred to by by the Saracens. I actually looked that up. Interesting thing here is that the character is, is William, as we'll find out. He actually presents himself as the king. He yells out that he is the king because he's trying to protect yes. Richard. 
Mm, right, right. Yeah, he's he's trying to deliberately deceive them into thinking yeah. he's the king, which yeah. works, and they they take him away, and they don't pay attention to Richard. <laughs> oh yeah, and and his capturer, who will uh, learn more about momentarily, uh, he's quite pleased with himself about the, what he's accomplished. There's one Saracen who is ordered to kill any other stragglers who are about, uh, but Ian starts fighting him. Meanwhile, the doctor starts fighting another Saracen, which, uh, you know, the doctor isn't the most uh, agile of combatants at this point <laughs> in his life. Well, it's, it's somewhat ludicrous to see him pick up a sword because we're talking about this old guy, you know, et cetera. And also, technically, he's someone who is pa- a pacifist and never, you know, he's, yeah. uh, I never kill anybody or whatever. But here he just picks up a sword and starts. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, he might be just hoping to smack the guy with the flat of the blade or something. We we don't know. Doctor's always got a plan. So Ian kills his Saracen, or appears to, maybe he just knocks him out. But I got the impression it was an actual kill. And the doctor is saved by a thrown sword. And it turns out to be the Englishman, the surviving Englishman. So a dying Englishman tells the crew to get the belt that he, I don't know if he's wearing it or has it just on his person, but the doctor seems to be familiar with it. He speaks of it like he's heard of it before, but I looked up King Richard's belt on the internet and I got nothing relevant, so I'm not sure what is going on there. It's interesting because this story is considered to be very historically accurate and this belt plays a big part. I mean, it keeps coming back, so it's interesting that if it wasn't really there, yeah. Yeah. So Ian goes to look for Barbara. She's gagged and being hustled through the woods. Meanwhile, and he doesn't find her, by the way. Meanwhile, Vicky is treating a wounded guy with some drugs, as the doctor asked her to. Ian returns empty-handed. Vicky and the doctor go to look for clothes that are more appropriate to the time period, which uh, apparently... Maybe at this point in the series, he wouldn't just have convenient clothes in the TARDIS. You know, he's building a wardrobe, I guess, at this point. Yeah, I try to, you know, I lose track because we, we watched we watch these in a weird order. I mean, there was some recent story we watched where he made a big deal about how many different kind of clothes he had in the TARDIS, and, and he clothed everyone yeah. from it. But, you know, we've also saw, if you remember the, one, the first one in France, the Reign of Terror, they found their clothes in a chest. So, yeah, they're mm-hmm. being a little inconsistent back in these days about, about how they get their clothes. Yep. <laughs> and then the doctor went into the tailor shop to get even fancier clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a. But apparently now they are going to a merchant to look for clothes. Ian, meanwhile, plans to build a stretcher for the wounded guy, the wounded Englishman. So Barbara comes to in a tent. It's a. It's a fairly good-sized, comfortable tent. And Malik Reek is in there with her, King Richard himself, except it's not really. Uh, he's the guy impersonating him. And he says they're at Ramna, the sultan's camp. And Barbara, history teacher that she is, uh, she says she thought King Richard had red hair. And at this point, Sir William, who is the actual guy, he admits that he's an imposter. <laughs> He tells Barbara it's likely impossible to get her back to the woods. But he has a plan. He's going to claim that she's 
Princess Joanna, sister of the king. <laughs> so they're going to role play brother and sister. Which has sort of echoes of the Aztecs when she was the, the god, you know, in that one. So, mm, yeah, yeah. She was, uh, she was the, the lady with the connection to the gods. <laughs> or she was a re- reincarnation. Yeah, she was of the, the actual priest god, who was yeah. buried in the tomb. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It was a priest who was also like a demigod. Or right. Yeah, it was a while back. <laughs> All I remember from that is to talk. Wait, do we need to start? Do we need to start this podcast over again and start watching this? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's get through all the existing episodes first, and then we'll, <laughs> then we can. If we make it to that point, sure, why not? <laughs> so, Asaris and our eyes with the guards, and this is Elik here, and he's a. Uh, Nasty hombre, and he's got a big old scar on his face. He, he's um, kind of, you know, us just having watched Marco Polo, there was a guy in there with the monkey on his shoulder and like an eye patch, and this guy's pretty similar to that, you know, that kind of very sleazy thing. But yeah, they that scar is really impressive. I mean, so his whole face and the makeup is actually pretty impressive for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not just like a light little scar, it's like... A big scar, and I think yeah, and across his you know, eye in some of the yeah. scenes, it looks like yeah, the eye is actually like covered up to make it look like he's lost the eye, or at mm-hmm. least uh, something's messed up about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's some uh, pretty formidable makeup there, but he answers to Saladin, and Saladin has ordered gentle treatment of the prisoners, uh, so he's going to abide by that for now, um, and. It, they tell him that Barbara is Joanna, the king's sister, and Elakir knows that Saladin's brother has admired her uh, for a while, and he'll be glad to see her. So he's just, he's beside himself at this point because he's got both the king and his sister who, uh, who is, has caught the eye of one of the big mucky mucks. So next we're at a merchant's tent in Jaffa. And the doctor shows up, and the, uh, the the merchant's doing his usual crying his wares, you know, mm-hmm. uh, finest silks from wherever, so forth. And doctor comes in and starts browsing. Another guy shows up, though, and he's got some clothes to sell the merchant, not to buy. And the doctor keeps browsing, and he overhears their conversation, and this guy has stolen these clothes, and apparently it's an arrangement they've had for a while now. And the doctor makes a little remark to himself. He says, well, if they're stolen, perhaps I can borrow them again. <laughs> Something to that effect. Right, so here's a question for you. Uh, I believe the merchant is named Dahir, and he's going to show up a number of other times. He was in Marco Polo. Do you, do you, would you guess who he was? Hmm... Was he the eunuch? No, the, uh, no, no. that was the eunuch. <laughs> so well, the guy no, there was. was the, I'm thinking. I mean, the guy who was like he was the administrator oh, of some yeah. outpost. Yes, exactly. Yes. And, so, so we okay. called. We said he was like the eunuch in Game of Thrones. So <laughs> that's what you're. Yeah, thinking. yeah. Yep, yep. That's him. So. <laughs> All right, good deal. And you know, he got a good deal out of this. He's in a whole bunch of the episodes. So. Oh yeah. So these clothes, it turns out, were stolen, not only stolen, but they were stolen from the palace. Mm. So they're, they're out property. 
I hadn't thought about it, but one of the things that people may not be aware of is that before the, you know, the modern era, clothing was very expensive, right? I mean, people had the clothes they wore and that was about it. And if you were rich, you had other clothes. I mean, clothes. So, so this idea of stealing clothing from the palace is like, yeah, these would be really valuable. Oh yeah. And you'd, they'd probably be finely woven. Even, even today, uh, one of the common measures of quality of fabrics is the thread count, which mm -hmm. the higher the thread count, the thinner the threads are, which means the more precision and, work needs to go into weaving them into fabrics, especially back in these days. That's a time-consuming task mm. to uh, make, make just, just the fabric to make clothes out of, let alone make the clothes themselves. Um, so anyway, these are, these are some nice clothes that the merchant's going to be selling. Uh, and uh, the thief leaves, and the doctor has apparently disappeared. The merchant's looking around for him, but the doctor's ducked under a table, and he sabotages the leg of the table with rope. Uh, he gives it a yank, and that topples the table, sends the clothes to the ground, and the merchant's lamenting about, oh, my beautiful clothes are in the <laughs> mud and all that. So then the doctor stands up and appears and, you know, completely innocent of any wrongdoing, of course, and he consoles the merchant and he, he says he's not going to buy anything today, but I'll be back. <laughs> and, of course, the doctor's got a whole bunch of stolen clothes. So, Saladin's tent now. And now this is odd because they mentioned Saladin has this tent set up here. But the clothes were stolen from a palace, so I'm not sure. Maybe the, oh no, the palace is the English guys. Yeah, cause, it's, cause it's the Richard, Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Chamberlain ends up re recognizing the, the stolen. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> okay, Saladin's tent. Elifir comes into Saladin's tent and he talks to his brother, who's Saffadin, I think. Yes. Uh, I, I always refer to him in my notes as Saladin's brother. <laughs> but. But the brother is sitting there out front, but Saladin is behind a curtain listening, and the visitors know this, or at least Elakir knows this. Um, but unless you say something really impressive, I guess he doesn't bother to open the curtain. Mm -hmm. Elakir says he's captured Malik Reek and his sister, but Saladin's brother immediately sees that she's a fraud because he's, he's the one who has the crush on the sister. Uh, and this ain't the girl he has a crush on. So mm -hmm. uh, right off the bat, Elakir has been taken down a notch. Saladin then comes out from behind the curtain. He sees the king, and he realizes that he's a fake, too. Mm -hmm. And William introduces himself as William, not the king. So Elakir is trying to make the best of a bad situation. He suggests having Barbara die for Saladin's pleasure, which, uh, you know, I guess it's... Possible. <laughs> and uh, uh, Saladin doesn't seem too impressed with that. But it, he it's says, also, it's well, one of those dark things, right? Because he suggests all sorts of things, you know, sort of ways he can torture her and stuff. Before, you know, it's just, it's really disturbing. <laughs> you know, he can have her, I think he says he can have her dance on knives for him and, you know, other <laughs> things. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the uh, the cruelty of the muscle men at work there for you. So Elakir, uh, Saladin instructs him that he's to give William, uh, the fake king, 
Uh, he's to give William all liberty except liberty itself, which means he'll be a pampered prisoner, but still a prisoner. Yeah, as a libertarian, I'm like, well, that's not liberty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Barbara, she stays with the uh, Saladin brothers. She explains she was carried to Jaffa in a box. She talks about the world she's visited, and this is where the web planet comes into play, because... She starts listing some of the recent ones off, and she mentions one that was ruled by insects. This makes no sense at all. I mean, why would she be talking about this stuff to these guys? It just yeah. makes her sound insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not really the best uh, best dialogue she could have put forth. And on hearing all this, Saladin assumes that she and his, her friends are entertainers. So it's... Uh, it worked out well, I guess. Right, since they're putting um, on plays about these sorts of things, yeah. Yeah. And he tells her, you must serve my purpose or you have no purpose. So he's laying down the law <laughs> there. And his plan for her is, you know, compared to what he could potentially do, it's kind of merciful, I guess. Uh, Barbara is to become his version of Scheherazade. You know, she's got to tell him a new, refreshing, interesting story every night. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, like Cher's odd situation, the alternative is death. Mm-hmm. So now we go to King Richard's palace, and this is where the clothes were stolen from. The doctor and Ian and Vicky all go there to return the king's belt. Richard, King Richard, has received word that Prince John is becoming uh, power-hungry back in England. He's learning some bad habits while his brother is away. And since you haven't seen Disney's Robin Hood, you won't uh, you won't get this, but all I can say is a pox on that phony king of England. <laughs> so Ian asks to be sent to Saladin's headquarters as an emissary. He wants to get Barbara back. Richard, however, is adamant that we do not trade with Saladin. And he goes on to explain that this is because Saladin killed Richard's friends. Now, Mm -hmm. he seems to be speaking of the friends who died at the beginning scene of this episode, but you have to imagine he's probably killed a lot of his other friends somewhere along the way, or at least (laughs) his loyal soldiers. Probably a lot of deaths to account for there. So, anyway, that's the deal. Ian's not going as an emissary to rescue Barbara, uh, at least not with the king's permission. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, their uh, their cliffhangers in this aren't quite as dramatic as in some. But, uh, <laughs> so next up, we have episode two, The Night of Jaffa. So this episode is a reconstruction. So we go back and forth between reconstruction and live action ones here. This was just snapshots of TV screens mainly. or You know, some, some stills from the production, but... A lot of them were that guy who took pictures of TV screens right, uh, right. and sold them to the studio. Yeah, and it's not, they don't, this isn't a reconstruction, at least the one we watched, where they do like fancy stuff. We've seen some of those where they kind of, you know, put some movement in and that sort of thing. But, you know, these are just pretty much screenshots. Yeah. And we're in Richard's throne room and. You know, Richard is fuming about the whole situation of, you know, his group being attacked and, and everything. So the guy who was wounded in that fight, de Tornbu, points out that 
while they were embarrassed by being attacked, there is some humor to this affair. And him saying that just pisses off Richard. But the doctor points out that he's right. You know, the mighty ruler Saladin thinks he's captured Richard, but he has the wrong person. And this could be used to embarrass mm-hmm. Saladin. He says, it's you know. actually Ella Kier who thinks he's captured Richard. Saladin twigs to it right away. Yeah, that's but, true. Yeah. But they don't know that at this point, you know, yeah. And so the doctor suggests Richard could spread the word about, you know, how many of Saladin's men they sent just end up capturing one of his knights and not even getting him. Vicky suggests that Richard could ask Saladin if he's done playing his game and could return the knight. (laughs) And eventually Richard agrees that there's something to all this. And the doctor takes it further by saying he could offer 100 of Saladin's men for the one knight. And Richard's skeptical about that, but the doctor points out that that it would show how little he values Saladin's fighters, mm-hmm. that one of his guys is worth 100 of theirs. And this all pleases Richard, and he welcomes the wise doctor to his court. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because, you know, one of the talents the doctor has is he immediately ingratiates himself to the local power structure whenever he shows up. Yeah, Hardinal can be a charming devil when he puts his mind to it. No, I'm I'm going to guess that many future doctors have this trait mm-hmm. in common as well. Well, yeah, they don't say it here, but, you know, it's usually combined, as we've seen in previous stories, with, oh, you're the smartest person I've ever seen or whatever, you know, this, <laughs> this doctor is, <laughs> yeah. Richard then muses on who he should send as a messenger to Saladin, and coincidentally, his sister Joanna enters. Now, here's another casting question. Did you recognize Joanna? I did not. You know, she's uh, she's definitely, I mean, part of the casting decision, no doubt, was that she's uh, an attractive woman, uh, but, but she's not really my type. You know, she's sort of a blue-eyed blonde. You know, I go for the, later on, we'll meet an actress called Fatima, or a, a character called Fatima, who uh, is more my type. Yeah. Although I only got to see her in a few still photos. Well, Joanna oh, is Sarah Kingdom, <laughs> if you recall Sarah Kingdom from uh, the Dalek's Master Plan. That's right. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, she she was like the super agent. Type, yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. She was like oh, running all the security. And again, a major actress, you know, they wanted her to be a companion on the show as Sarah Kingdom, and she turned them down and then went on to win awards and everything. So you know, uh, probably probably made the right choice. So this would have been before she yep. did that. Yep. Okay. Probably what a uh, year or two, but yeah, well, a year at least. Well, this is season, season two, and yeah. she would have been third yeah. season. So interesting thing here, and you see a little bit of it even in the reconstruction, is that she. This is Jean Marsh, and then she was she played another role later, like a third role in Doctor Who. So she has a whole history in Doctor Who, and she and Julian Glover agreed to play their brother and sister roles a little too close, which is also kind of a Game of Thrones thing, right? That they were a little too, you know, physically comfortable with each other. Uh. And you the, you can see it in the reconstruction, like they're right next to each other and, you know, really affectionate. Yeah, I remember, I remember mm-hmm. one particular shot wherein their faces are just like, you know, right. four inches apart. Well, apparently William Hartnell went ballistic about this and, oh. and forced them to kind of pull back on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, yeah, you know, I'm also going to say... For, for propriety. 
you get back to that kid show thing, and I don't totally blame him. For <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. You want to keep everything above board. Yep. And then Joanna mistakes Vicky as a young man, and the doctor jumps on this and goes with it. You know, I, I think he feels that Vicky will be safer. She's taken as a man. So he says her voice, well, he says his voice is not yet broken. <laughs> and this is hilarious because, it, again, total Shakespeare, right? Now we have a cross-dressing character, which is a very, very Shakespearean trope. Plus, the- Oh, sure. That was back in the day, you couldn't have a woman in a theatrical right. troupe. Yeah, so this is interesting, and a lot of times I think it was sort of gay men or gay boys who would play these roles, and they kind of had second-class status. But in addition to that, Shakespeare would have the characters in his plays be cross-dressing, right? So you have the kind of double thing of a man would be playing the character Mm. who was a woman pretending to be a man. (laughs) (laughs) Victor Victoria thing in reverse, I guess. You know, it occurred to me when you started talking about the uh, the king and his sister and uh, you know, Hartnell's objection to it, um, there is a certain uh, resemblance. No, I wouldn't say a strong resemblance, but but uh, this actress playing Joanna, she does have kind of a Queen Cersei mm-hmm. uh, aspect to her. Well, that was my reference to Game of Thrones, of, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So everyone else leaves and Richard and Joanna are alone and they're talking about how it's kind of weird that they're at war with Saladin, but Saladin and his brother Saffodin send them gifts regularly, you know, on their birthday or whatever. And (laughs) Richard says Saladin sends him gifts of fruit and snow. And gift of snow was interesting to me. So I I asked a chat GPT, which, you know, at least at the time (laughs) of our recording is a big deal. And uh, we'll come back to that. But yeah, I asked it about this gift of snow, and, and it's a, you know, yeah, this practice was commonly observed in the Middle East and North Africa, where snow is considered a rare and valuable commodity, and the tradition of giving snow as a gift dates back to the ancient times, and it often was accompanied by other signs of prosperity, like sweets and fruits and spices. So this is very historical what he said here. And it was something I wasn't aware of. It's interesting. And and I then, I then asked chat GPT, well, how did they transport the snow? <laughs> and uh, it informed me that in ancient times, snow was transported in insulated containers or covered with insulating materials, such as straw or animal hides to keep it cold during transport. And there was a whole process. Now, this being chat GPT, probably half of everything that I've said now is, is false. But <laughs> Well, I, I can at least verify that it's possible to keep snow for long periods, um, or at least frozen things, because uh, my dad grew up in a very rural area that didn't, didn't get electricity until the 1950s. Mm. And what they used to do was in the winter, the lake would freeze over, mm. and they'd go out and just saw big chunks of ice out of it. And they had a special sled that was like the community or sled, a special shed that was the community ice house. And they would bring these blocks of ice in there and cover them with sawdust. And that would be enough to keep them frozen Hmm. until the next winter. Um, And they'd just go in and take what ice they needed. Also, the time when people, you know, in terms of selling ice, yeah, it was basically the same thing, right? They would just have this big lake and you know, take ice out of it. And then they had special train cars that were insulated 
and they would take the ice all over the country. So it's a, it's actually, I mean, only in the very recent times that ice is just something you could have in your fridge or you know whatever. Right? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, after our big uh, ice uh, digression there, <laughs> <laughs> they end this, and and Joanna says to Richard that his heart calls for England, and he says, "Hey, it does." And this, so for as historical as this story is, this part is bullshit. Richard spent very little time in England. He wasn't interested. He treated England as basically a tax base that could pay for his wars. And he spent all of his time, Hmm. you know, off warring and outside of it. So, you know, he wasn't trying to get back to England. (laughs) Interesting. And now Richard kind of muses on the fact that Safadin's gift to Joanna means that he fancies her, and this may become important soon. (laughs) Now we switch to being outside of Saladin's throne room, and Alakir, you know, the nasty guy with the scar, is offering this woman, she's sort of a servant woman, Shayra, and he's offering her a ring to tell him where Barbara is, but she consistently refuses and finally runs away. And this is significant, and we're going to see another example of this later in the story, but, you know, a ring like that to a servant would be probably, you know, huge riches, right? So for her to mm-hmm. turn that down is pretty significant. And then a merchant named Luigi asks for help from Alakur to get an audience with Saladin and his brother. And I think now I'm trying to, is this the same merchant from earlier? I believe it is, which is the guy who was from Marco Polo. You know, I was never quite clear on that. I, 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 I don't remember the merchant in the tent being as elaborately dressed as Luigi is, but it could very well be the same. Yeah, uh, th- Although the merchant in the tent, I think I heard him have an Arabic name at some point. Or no, but I don't know. Yeah, well, whichever is the case, matter. this would be the guy who was in Marco Polo, I'm pretty sure. So Okay. So he's, you know, he's that typical sleazy capitalist character, right? He's just trying to make money. And he hey, promises... If he's sleazy, he's not a good capitalist. <laughs> He promises Alakira that he can find Barbara for him. And in the tent where Barbara is, Shayra, that, you know, servant we were just talking about, is with her. And she says the rumor is that she's going to tell a never-ending story to Saladin. And Barbara's like, oh, what am I going to do? And then she realizes, oh, I can use stories from Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet and Hans Christian Andersen and Lilliput and Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> so she's oh, always yeah, she's. She's really ideally situated uh, to tell the stories because she's a history teacher. That's what she does for a living. Unfortunately, as we'll see, this never <laughs> comes to anything. Yeah, never. The servant, Shayra, warns Barbara that she's made an enemy because, you know, Ella Kira tried to buy her off. And she tells Barbara she needs to be careful. And then Shayra leaves the room to get something for Barbara. And the merchant Luigi appears and tells Barbara to come with him, you know, and she's like, oh, did William send you? And he said, oh, yes. And so she goes off with him. And, of course, he delivers her to Alakir. And it's a, a pretty daring move on Alakir's part. I mean, he's nominally devoutly loyal to the Saladin brothers, mm. and uh, here he is doing them dirty. So. <laughs> We'll see. Right, because she's basically their prisoner, and he's stealing her from them. Back in Richard's palace, Ian is getting dolled up in period-appropriate clothing and a sword as the king wants him to do something. 
Then we go to Richard's throne room and he's dictating a letter where he appears to be offering a bunch of lands and riches to Safadin and also offering his sister in marriage. And then the doctor and Ian and Vicky enter and Richard tells Ian that he wants him to take that belt that they had recovered for him to Saladin as a gift and ask him to release Sir William and Barbara and to tell him about the marriage offer to his brother Safadin. And to make things official, he now knights Ian as a knight of Jaffa. <laughs> and hmm. uh, again, I asked Chat GPT about this. I said, you know, was there a concept of knights of Jaffa? And it said, no, it was just for this story. But, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon to be a knight who was associated with the city, and the city was Jaffa. So, you know, hmm. it's, it's both. There wasn't like a, oh, the knights of Jaffa, you know, but, but you, could oh, be, yeah. you could be made a knight and you were hanging out in Jaffa, so you were a knight of Jaffa. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Like a knight of Akron, as, as you mentioned <laughs> mm-hmm. earlier. Something perhaps worth mentioning is I think this is also the time when the the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights Templar and all those guys were doing their stuff in the Crusades. Mm-hmm. I, um, I didn't look into it extensively, but I got the impression from what little reading I read uh, um, on the Assassin's Creed wiki that <laughs> <laughs> this was that same time period. It's everything we know about the past came from Assassin's Creed. So. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, so in another room in Richard's palace, the clothing merchant that the doctor and Vicky stole from is complaining to the Chamberlain, you know, Richard's Chamberlain, about the theft. And he knows who did it. And so the Chamberlain says, you know, let's wait for the doctor to show up and we'll confront him with his infamy. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes some brass cojones for this merchant to come in and complain about this, seeing as how he bought yeah. goods that he knew were stolen from the castle. We'll see how that turns out. <laughs> uh, then in Saladin, you know, it's just one of the stories where we're going back and forth. So in Saladin's throne room, the merchant Luigi is trying to make a deal with Safadin. And Saladin now, you know, deigns to enter the room. He's always listening off to the side, as he said. And he says he's interested in hearing the merchant's opinion on a matter that will be more familiar to him than it is to them. And then Sir William and Shayra enter and... You know, the servant, Shayra, is insisting that she had nothing to do with Barbara's disappearance. She went to get Barbara's shoes, and Barbara was gone when she returned. Saladin prompts her, like, oh, did you find something there? And she's like, well, yeah, I found a man's glove on the table. And she pulls it out, and it turns out it's a match to the glove that is tucked into the merchant Luigi's belt. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly Saladin knew this all along. I mean, I I don't know when he questioned her or whatever, but, you know, Luigi is immediately seized. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big oversight, leaving your uh, distinctive glove on the table mm. where you just abducted somebody. Yeah, so after they grab Luigi, he admits that he took Barbara to Alec here. And back in Richard's palace, Ian has left to find William and Barbara. And the doctor and Vicky are confronted by the Chamberlain and that merchant, accusing them of stealing the clothes from the merchant uh, here. Now, I got a little confused. So, so this would be a different merchant than Luigi. Then. Yeah, Luigi's the one. So I think I got it confused. Luigi is the one who was from Marco Polo, and this is a different guy. That's, that's what yeah, I'm stating so, for the record. So I, I guessed wrongly, but <laughs> on the other hand, I guessed rightly. Yeah. 
Now, I'm going to be honest, and it's kind of a confusing thing in the story, because I was confused at this point, because the Chamberlain says the clothes were stolen from him, and the Merchant of Here says they were also stolen from him, and I actually had to go back from the script and kind of figure out what was going on, you know. So what has happened is that this guy who works for Richard stole the clothes and sold them to Dahir, the merchant, and that's when the doctor stole them. Right. But, it, but I got a little confused about all this. Oh, and But the doctor points out, and he's being all clever here, that you know both the Chamberlainers and the, and the merchant are saying that the clothes were stolen from them. And he says, well, I couldn't have stolen it from both of you. And so <laughs> I had to work out the chain of events. And, uh, you know... Vicky says to the merchant, well, did you buy the clothes from us? And he says, no. And um, so the doctor, you know, says clearly there was someone else you bought them from and it wasn't us and we didn't steal anything. And then coincidentally, the original thief, the guy who actually stole the clothes from the castle, shows up because he works here. And Dahir rats him out, you know, points to him and says, yeah. that's the guy. Very fortunate coincidence yeah. there for most people involved. Yeah, there was some, uh, oh, I think the merchant also offers some words in his defense, like, uh, oh, I, I bought them on good faith. I had no idea that they were stolen. Yeah, mm -hmm. So he's covering for himself, even though he, we, it, it was made clear to us earlier that he completely knew that they were stolen from the castle. Right, right. And so, you know, in the chaos this causes... The doctor has managed to get everyone to forget about the involvement of him and Vicky, and they kind of, you know, hightail it out of there. <laughs> and then we're outside of Elakir's palace, and we learn that Elakir apparently collects women. He has like a harem, and, you know, he's planning to add Barbara to it. And then Barbara shoves a guard and manages to escape. She does that a lot in this story. <laughs> <laughs> And meanwhile, at Saladin's palace, Ian has already reached his palace. So he didn't, you know, in the story, he didn't really have any travel time. He just sort of disappeared and showed up. And mm -hmm. he meets William, and William tells him that Barbara has been kidnapped and taken to Elok here. So, of course, Ian decides to go after her, which, again, is a total trope in Doctor Who, right? <laughs> you know, Barbara gets kidnapped, mm -hmm. Ian goes after her. And William tells him that she's going to be added to Elok here's harem. Uh, again, yeah. a slightly dark for a kid show. Yep. This just occurred to me, you know, we saw the little tacked-on intro with Ian as an older man. Mm. Uh, is there any canonical opinion of whether or not Ian and Barbara ended up together? <laughs> well, if you remember when we watched The Romans... I pointed out the scene where, you know, some people feel like it was a uh, post-coital scene uh, when mm. they were laying around mm. on the couches and everything. I mean, right. the actors say no, they, you know, et cetera. Uh, there are times when it's just hard to avoid the idea that they would have been. But it really is just up to you to to decide. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in the first episode, they, they seem to really... Yeah. Have a good regard for each other, if not romantic. But, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a coin flip. <laughs> Certainly could have happened. Now we see Barbara running through alleyways in a marketplace. You know, she escaped and she's trying to hide from Alakir's men. This is actually a pretty long scene and pretty well done, especially when you consider they had very limited space for sets, right? And she's, like, running through a marketplace kind of thing. And that's... You know, that's always tough. I mean, that's why in the early episodes like the Daleks, they would just be slapping them with tree branches or whatever to make it look like they were moving. 
Yeah. <laughs> I remember Susan running. Uh, that was where they first met the Daleks. Wasn't yeah. It? The running yeah. through that forest. And- yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and a lot of times in cases like this, what you're doing is you just have them sort of turn around and, and go in the other direction. And that becomes the next part of the set. Right. You know, you just. Uh, keep reusing the same set sort of thing. But anyway, this is pretty extensive where she's running and people are after her. And also some of them are carrying flaming torches, which, as I've mentioned, again, you're on these small TV sets and you have something on fire. You know, that's a big deal. And so she's, uh, you know, escaping from them. And someone comes up from behind her and puts a hand over her mouth. And it's the end of the episode. <laughs> She could have gone out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. We'll find out. Next up, the Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) Well, the Wheel of Fortune picks up where the last one left off with Barbara running through the streets and she ducks behind a corner and she's got a hand over her mouth suddenly. So maybe it's a rescuer. Maybe it's somebody with less honorable intentions. Fortunately, it turns out that uh, this guy in the streets of Linda is a rescuer. He quickly motions for her to stay quiet, and she seems to take his meaning. Two guards approach them coming down a narrow alley, and they're in another narrow off- alley off the that narrow alley. <laughs> and the captor takes both of them out. And he explains that he is Haroon. He's an enemy of Alakir. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he says, no, you know, enemies. He doesn't say exactly this, but it's kind of the enemies make strange bedfellows, right? That because she's running from <laughs> Alakir and he's an enemy of Alakir, they're now in league with each other. Yeah. So then we switch to uh, Richard's palace. The merchant is back, and he's provided the doctor with a fine new outfit, you know, a nice long coat and button-up shirt and all that good stuff. And he's going to return at sunrise with a fine set of clothes for Vicky. They'll be male clothes, of course. And after he leaves, she complains about playing a boy. She doesn't like it. She's a girly girl, I guess. <laughs> As she's talking about this, Joanna enters. She's discovered the deception. She doesn't, you know, Vicky talks her down from it, uh, being too upset about it. Uh, But Joanna's upset for another reason also, which is that her brother won't confide his plans in her. Yeah, usually, you know, as I said, they're very close, and he would tell her everything, but all of a sudden he's not telling her everything, so she knows something is up. Yeah, and uh, her instincts are right in this Mm -hmm. case. And in fact, we already got an intimation of that in the previous episode. Mm -hmm. uh, We'll find out all the details soon enough. Vicky, in the meantime, has gone off to fetch the Chamberlain, and he ret- he returns with Vicky. And when he's told to get dresses for Vicky, he laughs, uh, not knowing that she's not actually a boy. So she explains that she's not actually a boy, and he's all like, "Oh, how times are changing," or you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so when the doctor and Vicky are alone again. She's concerned by the, some of the doctor's recent reactions uh, that he might be thinking of leaving in the TARDIS without her. He might mm. think that she's a burden. Um, and he, he, he laughs and scoffs and reassures her. He says uh, he's apprehensive, but not about Vicky. He's, he's worried about the possibility that he's going to get involved in dangerous court intrigue. Um, and to some extent, he will. Uh, but... Uh, 
But Vicky's okay by him anyway, so that's nice. And then we're at Haroon's place. You know, Haroon is the guy who just uh, protected Barbara from the guards. He enters his home with Barbara, and he calls for his daughter, Sophia. Barbara, he says, she has to stay here because Elakir's soldiers are still searching for her. Until they've settled down, she's got to stay here to be safe. He goes on to explain that he's sworn to kill Elakir, uh, and he explains further why he's sworn that. Uh, he used to have a mansion, and this place they're in now is definitely not a mansion. It's a, it's a little one-room hut, basically, you know, mm. little stucco walls and so forth. Um, but he had a mansion, and he had a wife and a son and a second daughter in addition to Sophia. And what happened was Alakir took that other daughter... He burned the mansion, and he killed the wife and son. <laughs> so now he stays in Lydda, waiting to get his revenge on Elakir. He gives Barbara a knife and says that if Elakir's soldiers capture her and Sophia, she must use that knife to kill them both. Not the soldiers, but herself and Sophia. Yeah, again, I, I refer to be... the darkness as a term. Yeah. And Barbara does not look happy about this. She mm-hmm. looks positively uh, displeased. But she takes the knife, because what else are you going to do? And Sophia returns after her father has left. He's As soon as he gave Barbara the knife, he, he went out to do his stuff. Um, she returns, and we find out that her dad never revealed to her the fate of her family members. She thinks that her mom and brother could still be alive somewhere, and she still has some hope of finding them, which seems like an unnecessarily deceptive thing to do, but, Mm. you know, I guess he was trying to spare her feelings, maybe, Mm. I don't know. But Sophia notices that her father left his knife here, and she says, how strange, he never goes without it. (laughs) And you might think this is foreshadowing, and it is, but it's not foreshadowing as we know it, Jim. It's wait 10 seconds and see foreshadowing. And I think it was either here or a bit later, but, I mean, Barbara kind of tried to leave the knife behind, and they go to hide, and the the girl brings the knife with them, so that just puts right. Barbara in this we'll... awkward situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that that comes pretty, pretty soon here. <laughs> so, Sophia's just noticed that it's strange he left his knife, and we cut to the street where Arun is out and about, and he's instantly subdued by the guards out there. <laughs> and he goes to reach for his knife, and he doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. So, the foreshadowing is paid off in mm-hmm. record time, almost. One of the guards recognizes him from the northern quarter, and... Uh, the guards seem to think that that's sort of a hive of scum and villainy, like Moss Eisley Spaceport. Yeah. I think um, I don't think you mentioned here, I mean, they basically stab him. I mean, instantly the guard stabs him when he reaches for his knife that isn't there. So he's he's now out, and we assume dead. Mm, yeah. See, I, I, I didn't catch that, but then again, if I had, it would have been misdirection, mm. uh, as we'll find out later. 
But they recognize that he's from the Northern Quarter, a place of disrepute, a mm -hmm. place where criminal types hang out, which means that Barbara could have gone to hide there because if she's trying to escape from Elakir, obviously mm -hmm. she's a criminal type. So they go there to check. Meanwhile, Richard is in conference with the doctor and Lord Lester and some other people. And he's thinking of having his sister marry Saladin or Saladin's brother, Saffadin. And Lord Lester objects. He prefers war. That's what he's here to do. He's here to fight, not to you know, pussyfoot around with <laughs> marriage schemes and so forth. And the doctor calls him a stupid butcher, which <laughs> I thought was a, an amusing insult. I, uh, I'd say that I'd like to use that on someone, but I'd really rather not meet a stupid butcher. If I can avoid it. <laughs> and there's a little more conversation. The doctor follows up by saying that he has bravery and he has loyalty, but he has no brain. <laughs> uh, so the doctor is definitely not trying to ingratiate himself with mm -hmm. this guy. And understandable because the doctor goes to lengths to avoid killing people, whereas this guy seems to positively enjoy it. King Richard says that if the marriage doesn't go through, then the war will continue. But his heart is set upon the marriage. That's his preferred plan. Mm -hmm. At the Saladin's tent, they've received, or the Saladin brothers' tent, they've received the proposal, and they talk about it. Uh, Saladin is for it, and Saladin says he'll let it proceed, but he's going to... Trust but verify, as President well, Reagan once an said. An interesting bit here is Safinan is like, well, is he, you know, screwing with us and lying to us or whatever? And Salad is like, no, this is so sincere that he's, you know, uh, you know, he's really just exposing himself. I mean, clearly to him, the sincerity of it is a weakness that he can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. But uh, despite the apparent sincerity of it, he isn't convinced that it actually will go as proposed right. yeah i mean he's like oh well we will go ahead and do the marriage thing and we'll see how that goes and if it doesn't we're going to have our troops ready for war right so it's yeah. going to be one or the other <laughs> yeah yeah he's going to be prepared uh one way or the other and he's not going to return sir william yet either so uh vicky's original idea of uh you know saying can you return the night now that <laughs> the game is over that's uh that didn't fly, I guess. And Ian is going to be permitted to search for Barbara. You know, it's just a sign of good uh, goodwill on their part, I guess, that they're going to let him go out and do that. Back at Haroon's home, uh, Sophia and Barbara can hear the guards outside. They're harassing other families in their search for Barbara. Uh, they can hear the voices carrying through the streets. And they're getting closer and closer to this house. Uh, Barbara asks about a hiding place that uh, Sophia has set up for them in the house here. And when the time comes to go into the hiding place, uh, which turns out it's not a very well-concealed door. I mean, the, the lines around it are very well, obvious. As a viewer, it seems like it's not well-concealed, but these guys search the hell out of this place and they never find it. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, but from what we can see, and... It may not have been as evident on the old 1960s television sets either. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the door, it, it blends into the wall, but it has very obvious lines around it where it you know, is a separate part of the wall. 
But anyway, it seems to work well enough. And when they go in, Barbara leaves the knife on the table, probably deliberately. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sophia, uh, being attentive, picks so it up. So I was way ahead of this part. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, she says, in case we have to defend ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So then it's very awkward because Barbara tried to leave the knife behind and then she brought it in and now she's faced with, you know, does she try to, does she have to kill them both? <laughs> <laughs> So they get in there. It's kind of a, you know, decent-sized closet, big enough for both of them, little breathing room. And a guard comes in. Just He doesn't even knock. He just opens the door, walks in, and starts looking around. He does his thing, and he's about to leave when he spots two still-warm cups on the table. Probably tea, I don't know exactly, maybe soup, whatever it is. They're warm, and they're full of something warm. So... He's going to give it a closer look. He's got another guard with him now. They're both looking around. One of the guards goes off to the other room. I guess there is a second room in there. Barbara sneaks out of hiding. She leaves the knife with Sophia. I think she just doesn't want to have anything Mm. to do with that knife. And she does some pretty good sneaking at first. But the second guard enters from the other room and catches her. As a story point, I'm going to call BS here, like... They were successfully hiding in this place that the soldiers have not been able to find, even though they spent, you know, several minutes looking around. So all she needed to do was stay where she was, right? And for no reason we could determine, Barbara leaves the hidden room. And then, of course, instantly gets caught because what there are like two soldiers in the apartment. You know, there's no way she was going to get away with it. It makes no sense other than a plot point to get her caught once again, right? This is second or at least second or third time this story. (laughs) It's hard to know what was going through her mind. I mean, she wasn't trying to slit the guy's throat because Mm -hmm. she didn't bring the knife with her. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would have at least made some sense, yeah. Yeah, I. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe she, maybe she just thought if they stayed in the closet there, they were bound to be found when they searched adequately. But even then, and, okay. But so again, it would have made sense if she tried to attack the guard. It would have made sense if she had distracted the guard so they found her instead of the girl in the hiding place, right? But that's not mm-hmm. what she did. She tried to sneak around. She was, you know, neither of those things is what mm. she was doing. That's where I'm like, oh, this, you know, this was just we need to get Barbara captured again, <laughs> you know, to move the story forward. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the Doylean interpretation makes the most sense here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we switch to Ian, who is out in some uh, semi-barren place. Uh, we don't get a large, wide view. We just see him lying on some barren ground. Uh, he's sleeping, and his sword is lying on the ground right beside him. And while I like the scenes that this leads to, it also kind of, again, doesn't make any sense. Like, he was going out to find Barbara or whatever, and for some reason he's sleeping on a sandy beach, which, you know, I, I don't know. It doesn't. It's a little hard to imagine that would have been in his path, you know, but uh, okay, whatever. I didn't get the impression it was a beach. I thought it was more just like a rocky, you know, limestone shelf or, you know, Something like that, but it, but it wasn't really clear. They didn't give you a long shot of it. It's just you know, right. typical Doctor Who set. <laughs> they showed you what they needed to show, and that's it. You can infer the rest on your own time. <laughs> hmm. So we see a guy sneak up, 
you know, it's not clear yet if he's one of Alakir's guys or who he is, but uh, he's trying to steal the sword. Um, he almost comes at the sword from one angle, then he thinks better of it, goes around and tries from another angle, and he's almost successful, but Ian finally wakes up uh, and catches him. And they have a little bit of a scuffle. And Ian's getting the upper hand. He's got the guy down on the ground. Uh, but it turns out that the thief has an accomplice, mm -hmm. and he knocks Ian out, which, you know, it's it's probably for the number of concussions Ian must have gotten <laughs> during this course of this adventure or these adventures. Uh, you know, it's amazing that he still had enough mind left to make that introduction to the first episode here. <laughs> So meanwhile, back at Richard's palace, uh, Joanna thinks Vicky looks beautiful in her new outfit. And it's a, a good-looking outfit. It's a little bit severe, but it's good-looking. And the, uh, the doctor won't tell Joanna the plan. Um, he says King Richard spoke to him in confidence, and she must ask him herself, which is mm -hmm. fair enough. Yeah, but, but somehow it turns out that Joanna knows the plan anyway. And we don't get any explanation there right now. And it was a big enough question that I was wondering about it, but we'll find out yeah, where she I, I think it's a reconstruction issue because once you know what's going on, you can realize, and, you know, I watched this two or three times in preparation for this podcast, there's a moment the reconstruction shows her walking away from Lester. Um, I think that's how you mm -hmm. pronounce it, right? In in, right. in America, we'd want to say like Leicester or something, Leicester, but I think in British, yeah, it's Leicester. Uh, so, the, so I think it's there, but we have a hard time seeing it because there's like only one shot where she's anywhere near this other guy. And it also happens immediately after, again, at least in the reconstruction, immediately after she's talked to the doctor and Vicky. So it's a little hard to know when he okay. would have said this to her. But but anyway, yeah. I didn't. I didn't actually find out till later but you're probably right there probably was some you know raised eyebrow or some such thing in this uh yeah so but she knows the plan at any rate and she confronts her brother about it and she refuses to go along with it and king richard first he entreats her and when that doesn't work then he commands her and she gets in some fun acting here she really uh puts on the emotion for a couple lines here and it's uh and enjoyable, uh, and that may have been what contributed to her becoming Sarah Kingdom, mm -hmm. was the name, mm -hmm. and then in later story arcs. So Joanne comes up with a pretty uh, decisive counter-argument here. She says the Pope will not allow marriage <laughs> to that infidel. And considering that King Richard is doing these crusades, presumably in the interests of the church, you know, the, the Pope has a uh, fair amount of impact. Mm. Yeah, him. I mean, kind of the discussion here, right, is he's like, I'm the king, I can do whatever I want. And she's like, well, no, you know, because there's the Pope, right? So, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. At this point, King Richard very nearly slaps her, slaps his sister. Yeah. Uh, but he holds back. He's got his hand raised. He's ready to do it, but he... It's it. I forget. I did. I forget the exact line, but she has a really good line here somewhere where she says she's going to turn everyone against him or something. Or you know, you defy me with the Pope. No, you defy the world with your politics. 
The reason you and all your armies are here is the reason on my side. You are here to fight these dogs, defeat them, marry me to them, and you make a pact with the devil. Force me to it, and I'll turn the world we know into your enemy. Like, she really takes the offensive. She she definitely held her own in that argument, and, uh, you know, she's got the the Pope to back her up. But then, uh, as somebody once said, how many divisions does the Pope have? (laughs) Anyway, uh, doctor, the doctor, uh, denies giving away the plan. King Richard uh, thinks that he's given away the plan. No, yeah. He's like, Oh, you're, you can, you know, I no longer want to look at you. You can't be in my court anymore. So he's, he's completely turned on the doctor. no, No longer welcome in my presence or some such thing. Yeah, the doctor says, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Meanwhile, Barbara is dragged before Alec here. And this, I think if we're keeping track, this is her third capture. (laughs) And Alec here does not give her a particularly warm welcome. He says, the only pleasure left for you is death. And death is very far away. And that's the end of episode three. So as yeah. cliffhangers go, that's not too shabby. I like no, it. And, and again, to that darkness thing and children's show, I mean, and, you know, you know the kinds of things that he's implying. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty shocking ending there. Okay, next up, the, the last episode, The Warlords. Okay, so we start out in... Elakir's room and he's having to pay out gold to his men who recaptured Barbara. <laughs> uh, after some bickering. He doesn't have to, but he, he chooses to. It's yeah. his prerogative. And he says how valuable <laughs> she is and all this. But After some bickering back and forth, she then knocks the gold coins out of his hands, which distracts the guards who want the gold. <laughs> and uh, she pushes... Alec here and runs away again, so Barbara now escapes I, for the fourth time. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, if you work for a guy like Alec here, make sure the lady's secured first. You can get the gold <laughs> at your leisure. Yeah, but one of them actually yeah. says, I want the gold, right? I mean, this is like, <laughs> yeah, the gold is mine or something. Mm-hmm. Like that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, not not great thinking on their part, I would think. So well, now we well. switch to the Seraglio or Seraglio. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but so this is what the script called Seraglio. it. Seraglio. Okay, that makes I sense. Think. And I didn't know what it was. So, uh, again, this being our theme, I asked ChatGPT what it was. And it says Seraglio is a term that originally referred to the part of an Ottoman palace where the sultan's wives and concubines lived. And um, it basically refers to a secluded space, usually with just women in it so that kind of makes sense here so this is where Alec here puts all his women and as he mentions somewhere in here he says no other men but him are allowed in here so (laughs) this is his little play space so I actually have a comment to make here Mm -hmm. because um, where I first learned that word it turns out Mozart wrote two different operas (laughs) That were called The Abduction from the Seraglio mm. and The Marriage of Figaro. Mm-hmm. And PDQ Bach wrote one opera called The Abduction of Figaro. So <laughs> I ended up learning The Abduction from the Seraglio from uh, 
<laughs> from actually I, most of what I know about classical music, I learned from various PDQ block works. No, just wanted to mention that. Give credit where credit is due. Yeah, what little I know about that sort of thing. <laughs> so Alakir and his guards enter into this private space, and Alakir is not happy to have other men here because it's you know his playground, and they're looking for Barbara, and clearly, kind of the leader of the women in the harem is a woman named Maimuna. And she tells him that no one's coming in. You know, Barbara's not here. They don't know what he's talking about. And Alakir offers a ruby ring for whoever turns in Barbara. And this kind of goes back to what he did with the servant where he offered her a ring. So that's his, you know, offering low-class people these rings that would make a big difference in their lives is one of his approaches, clearly. And we see a woman who we will... be who will become known to us as Fatima in the background, and she seems kind of intrigued yeah. by this. Yeah, it's too bad this episode wasn't uh, preserved in live action, because she's pretty. <laughs> okay. So after Elicare leaves, you know, the women sort of stand aside, and Barbara is revealed. Now, uh, I got that from the script. You can't tell it in the uh, reconstruction, but... Yeah. Uh, and then we switch. They, they do with the reconstruction. They 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 did some good timing, like showing a significant shot of her when mm. they say no one in here will betray you. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's easy to miss. It's like that thing I missed earlier. <laughs> there are probably and many what, things. One thing I will mention here is. Um, there are t several scenes in here that I just left out because they don't advance the story at all so uh i'm just focusing <laughs> on the ones that actually do something and and we can come back and comment on that so Fair going enough. to the desert ian is lying staked out on the sand i i also wish i would rather have this have been a live one than you know other ones that were live because i have no idea how they filmed this right this whole sequence um but anyway he's staked out on the sand and Ibrahim, you know, this Arab guy is taunting him and offering water. And interestingly, I mean, at this point, Ibrahim is a very stereotypical character, right? He's a he's a blacked mm -hmm. up Arab who's who's being very nasty and and everything to this guy for for you know just to to get a little bit of money out of him. Hmm. And Ian tells him he can have gold if he unties Ian. And he's, you know, not fooled by that. And this is where he gets really, really sadistic, right? I mean, he takes... Yeah, he's really gloating and... Yeah, yeah and, and he goes into great detail and all this. So he takes this little vial of honey and he puts some of it on Ian's lips and on his chest. And then he puts a trail of it from Ian to some nearby ants. Um, and he and he explains in great detail what the ants are going to do and you know what Ian's going to see and all this. And this guy is just, you know, the worst, uh, at least at this <laughs> point. He's even humming some little uh, happy tune. You know, yeah, and he's like, oh, I'm going to sit over here in the shade and just watch you get eaten by ants. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't put it so... Uh so vulgarly, though. You know, he says, oh, yeah, the lovely little creatures will come and you know, we will be generous to them. Whatever. <laughs> but yeah, at this point, he does not come across as a likable guy yeah. at all. So then we switch to Richard's throne room and Vicky and the doctor are talking to Lester. And 
most of the scene is not important, but it turns out that we discover that Lester is the guy who told Joanna that she was going to be married off. So, you know, Richard got pissed off because he thought the doctor and Vicky had betrayed him, but in fact, it was Lester who did. And just like uh, Joanna had overheard, you know, the thing where Vicky said she was a girl, Richard overhears this conversation, and so mm-hmm. he knows that Lester ratted a, a, her out, and... um Makes at least three very coincidental arrivals in yeah. this story, Eric. Yeah, so he ends up forgiving yeah. Vicky and the doctor. But they ding him for not immediately calling out Lester when he found this out. But he's like, look, Lester's a good fighter. <laughs> We're about to have a war. <laughs> I need all the fighters I can get, which, you know, yeah, you can't argue with that too much. No, sure. But he does say, you know, and the doctor says, well, now Lester's an enemy of mine. And Richard agrees. And he says, well, you two should go away for a while. You should go to like a city called Acre. Um, yeah, it's spelled Acre. I think it might be pronounced more like Acre, although they pronounce it Acre in in mm-hmm. this show. Yeah, but, it's like, uh, go to this yeah, city until things calm down with Lester. And just for the benefit of any of our listeners who like video games, you can visit uh, Accra in in the very first original debut Assassin's Creed game, uh, which probably one day will get a remake uh, or remaster. But uh, yeah, I think this podcast uh, is really a retelling of uh, Assassin's Creed. <laughs> 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 Yeah, that's probably my most referenced game. But then again, uh, the historical stuff they've picked out for Doctor Who just seems that's to true. dovetail yeah. neatly with it. <laughs> so the Doctor asks Richard, you know, if you defeat Saladin, are you actually going to be able to hold the city of Jaffa? And Richard admits that he has this problem where he could win the battle, you know, and defeat Saladin, but then lose the war because he can't actually hold the city. And also, he now laments that he really, really is intent on seeing Jerusalem in his life. And the doctor ensures him that he will. And this leads into something that reminded me. So, you know, I don't know how much you know about Egypt and that history, but the doctor does this old Oracle of Egypt style trick. So the Oracle of Delphi was, you know, was a real character. That would have been a Greek Oracle. Yeah, okay, that was, uh, is it, yeah, it was a different oracle. But anyway, in Egypt, you know, whichever. <laughs> whichever, I'm not even, there was an oracle. <laughs> I think it was Egypt, but it, was, it had a different name, yes. I forget the name. You can visit Delphi in one of the Assassin's Creed games, too. In case you This oracle, you know, would be asked questions and, of course, wanted to get things correct, so would make vague answers, right, that could be interpreted mm-hmm. as correct after the fact. And one of the most famous was this leader, I don't know if it was a pharaoh or whatever, I can, you know, but um, asked the oracle, am I going to win this battle? And the oracle said, once you cross this certain point in the river, and in the River Nile, there's a point that's considered to be where you would get to victory and everything. The mm. oracle said, once you cross this point, a great empire will fall. And the leader was like, great, I'm going to go conquer this empire. <laughs> what he didn't realize was the empire that was going to fall was his own. <laughs> right? so, uh, yeah. so the doctor yeah. doctor kind of does that trick here. 
he tells Richard, when you look upon Jerusalem, you will find the answer to the problem of this war. <laughs> what he doesn't tell him that he kind of, you know, intimates to Vicky afterwards is, yeah, what he's going to realize when he looks upon Jerusalem is that he can't win and he's then going to have a settlement with Saladin's. <laughs> <laughs> And when Vicky asks him, you know, well, you know, when Vicky asked the doctor, why didn't you explain all of this to him clearly? The doctor is back to his old, you can't change history thing, you know. So. <laughs> and especially if you don't try. Yeah. <laughs> so their plan, instead of going to the city, is to head back to the ship. At the harem. And it turns out that the, the lead harem woman, Maimuna, is the daughter of the man who saved Barbara. So that's another helpful coincidence. Yeah. Elakir had told her that her father and sister were dead. So, you know, she's surprised to learn that her father's alive. She's, or was alive. She thinks that her father had hated her, but Barbara sets her straight that he loved her and was trying to save her. He's still actively looking for her, which uh, is is still a relevant point. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Richard's palace, Lester is told that the doctor and Vicky have left the palace, right? Because Richard told them he should go away because Lester was mad at them. And Lester wants them followed, and he says the doctor may be in the pay of Saladin, or worse, he's a devil in human form. <laughs> and having just come <laughs> off of Marco Polo, remember how many times they said spirits? You know, these are evil spirits. <laughs> <laughs> evil spirit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're back to the desert, and the ants have reached Ian, so he can't take it anymore. He tells Ibrahim that he has gold in his boot. <laughs> so Ibrahim gets excited and he, he cuts the cords that are holding one of, you know, Ian's boots there, one of Ian's feet there, <laughs> one of Ian's feet there. <laughs> and he takes off the boot, but there's no gold in it. And Ian says, no, I meant the other boot. So Ibrahim <laughs> cuts the, the bond. After he'd already cut the one <laughs> See, Abraham is a trusting soul, I guess. Yeah. Well, he's really excited about this gold. Because he had said earlier, I didn't mention that because of Ian's clothes, he, he knew that Ian was rich, right? And he was like, I'm not rich, yeah. you know. But, um, so then Ian's like, no, no, it's in the other boot. And so Ibrahim cuts the bonds to the other boot. And then Ian flips himself over and gets his arms free and subdues Ibrahim. So it was a bad idea. <laughs> a good idea for Ian. Yeah. And he then forces Ibrahim to take him to the city of Lydda, which is kind of where everything's happening. Back in Elikir's palace, Fatima, <laughs> the girl who was interested in that ruby ring, she shows up to Elikir and offers up Barbara's location so she can get the ring. And she's not supposed to be out of the harem. Yeah, she kind of snuck so, out. Elikir is a little bit uh, annoyed at first. Yeah, he's like, why are you here, et cetera, yeah. And I left out a scene where she snuck out because that scene didn't have much going on. Um, right. And now we see that Ian and Ibrahim are now outside the palace, and they find a guard who's been killed. And it wasn't I didn't, It wasn't clear to me what that had to do with anything, like why was this guard killed Um Maybe there's some reason in the story. I don't understand it. But Ian takes yeah, his sword. That, 
I, di- I didn't even catch that part. So, I, yeah, I don't know yeah. what the deal is there. So Ian takes his sword. So that was the benefit of the guard being killed. He's now armed. And mm-hmm. it turns out that Ibrahim really doesn't like Elakir. And for a funny reason, I really like this. He says, he has made the rich people so poor there's no one left to steal from. <laughs> so, says, if you rid the world of him, you will be remembered as a savior, and I shall not betray you. Now, you know, this is the guy that a couple minutes ago was having ants, you know, eat him. So it's a little hard to buy this, but, you know, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, circumstances have changed, I guess. <laughs> but, but, yeah, Ibrahim, uh, he's he's starts out as a guy that you would probably – uh, if not wish death on, at least wish some misfortune on just to get him out of your hair. Um, and now all of a sudden, uh, they're like uh, brothers. <laughs> and he turns out to be, um, you know, from this point on, he turns out to be a pretty likable character. But, yeah. um, you know, he's definitely uh, a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Ian says, okay, great, if we're, you know, colleagues now why don't you go steal some horses while i go deal with elok here and this just you know lights up um ibrahim's face he's like oh now you now you understand now you're one of us you know asking him to steal horses (laughs) (laughs) so back at the harem elok shows up you know because he's been told by fatima that barbara's there so he shows up to get barbara and he's about to use his sword on maimuna and then he's stabbed in the back by mm. her father, <laughs> which yeah. had, who had been left for dead earlier. So we had no reason to believe he was alive. But okay, somehow he he got through getting like stabbed by a soldier. Oh yeah, and that that would have been a fun scene to have in live action. Yeah, Alec here getting stabbed, <laughs> especially by a guy that we like. <laughs> and Ian now shows up and takes Barbara off with him. And Fatima comes in and sees Elakir on, you know, on the floor, and she's shocked. And the other women in the harem surround her, but we don't get to see her fate. But they're clearly not happy with her. Probably <laughs> <laughs> to- involves ants and honey. Yeah. Then we go to the main gates of the palace, and amazingly, Ibrahim was good to his word, and he got the horses for Ian. And Ian gives him his some gold that he found at some point in <laughs> see in the palace and uh, they end things as friends and Ibrahim uh, really likes him and you know did his part so okay that's an interesting twist there <laughs> and we go into the woods and the doctor and Vicky are close to the TARDIS but you know Leicester's men are blocking them from it and so they sneak around to get into the TARDIS but the doctor is captured and he tells Lester that Richard gave him leave to go, which is true, not to go in the TARDIS, but to go in general. Yeah. And Lester believes that the doctor is on his way to Saladin to betray Richard. And I think, you know, he probably really believes that. I don't think we have any reason in the story to think that he's lying about this. Hmm. And now we have a fun little twist. Ian shows up and he agrees that the doctor is a traitor and he gets Lester to agree to let him kill the doctor, you know, because he's now an official knight of Jaffa. So he says he'll take care of it. Lester actually, at first he wants to be the one to kill the doctor. 
Uh, but then Ian explains, oh, he killed two of my friends who were two <laughs> of the guys in that very first episode who got killed by Saracens. Mm. Um, so then Lester says, okay, go ahead. You got the better claim on it. <laughs> right. And now it doesn't really impact anything, but the doctor makes one last wish, which Lester grants, which is he wants to look once more upon the city of Jaffa. So Lester starts to leave because, you know, the the doctor and Ian are going to have to go to Jaffa to let him get his last look, and he doesn't want to go along with them. So as soon as he starts to leave, of course, Ian and the doctor get in the TARDIS, and it dematerializes. And another <laughs> nice little twist here. Lester now believes that Ian was tricked by the doctor, who's this kind of demon or wizard or whatever, and who kidnapped him into the TARDIS. <laughs> and he says, what dreadful anguish and despair he must be suffering now. <laughs> <laughs> And the next thing we hear is them all laughing. So. Yeah, because they're making jokes about <laughs> Ian being a knight and all this. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, suddenly things go dark and the uh, the TARDIS console stops operating. And our last shot is of the crew completely motionless. And we see that the next episode is the Space Museum. <laughs> <laughs> Which we, you know, you can go back. We, we covered that. <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, the doctor gets a fun little joke off, too, about uh, Ian being ready for a good night's sleep. <laughs> yeah. I, I got more pleasure out of that than I should have, probably. <laughs> so, I mean, we talked about the acting. What do you think about, about overall about the acting in this one? Is it... Um, I thought it was good. I, uh, you know... Uh, I, I think the standout performance for me would have been uh, Joanna, um, especially where she's confronting her brother about mm -hmm. uh, refusing the arranged marriage. Um, she gets uh, she gets some moments in there where she really delivers the lines with a strong emotion, um, and it doesn't sound forced. It's mm -hmm. it's. As acting goes, it's some of the more, uh, you know, I guess I'm not sure bombastic mm. isn't quite the right word, right. but uh, forceful, you know, loud, vocal, whatever. Um, but I thought I thought it was done well as far as I could tell. What's this I hear? I can't believe it's true. Marriage to that heathenish man, that infidel. We will give you reasons for it. This unconsulted partner has no wish to marry. I am no sack of flour to be given in exchange. It is expedient. The decision has been made. Not by me and never would be. Joanna, please consider. The war is full of weary, wounded men. This marriage wants a little thought by you, that's all. Then you'll see the right of it. And how would you have me go to Safferton? Bathed in oriental perfume, I suppose. Suppliant, tender and affectionate. Soft-eyed and trembling. Eager with a thousand words of compliment and love. Well, I like a different way to meet the man I am to wed. Well, if it's a meeting you want. I do not want. I will not have it. Joanna. Yeah, as I recall, I believe Toby, when we had our discussion about that season, and we hadn't watched it, uh, he, I think he said this was the best performance of the whole season. Huh. Well, that's uh, he's an authority in these matters, so <laughs> if I'm agreeing with him, then I'll pat myself on the back here. Yeah, I mean, I think the acting is really good, you know, and again, we're coming off of the web planet. <laughs> Just <laughs> but 
I mean, I don't think there's any bad performances. You have people being serious. You have people being jokers, you know, like the merchant or whatever. Uh, but I think everyone does a really good job. The writing, you know, is really solid. The dialogue is really solid. I mean, what I come to is like, we just did Marco Polo. And mm-hmm. I really enjoy Marco Polo, but it is seven episodes, mostly of them sitting around talking in different environments, right? They change the environment and then they sit around and talk. And this has all sorts of stuff, but Marco Polo, it is truly a Doctor Who story, right? I mean, the entire story is driven by the fact that everybody wants his TARDIS. The TARDIS is kind of the, you know, this prestige thing that that's going to help people win wars or, you know, be gifts or whatever. And that, and, and, you know, Doctor Who and the crew and the TARDIS are all completely integrated into the Marco Polo story, right? Mm. Here, we have really good writing, great acting, you know, perfectly good sets, and there's no story. <laughs> I mean, there's literally no story. <laughs> they show up, they leave, they didn't change anything, their presence didn't change anything, you know, they there wasn't a we didn't even get just historically some key battle or something. It's just like, well, we're out of here. Bye, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's just kind of weird that I mean, I feel like if they could have taken the acting and the writing and and had an actual Doctor Who story, this would be like one of the best stories ever. But instead, it's kind of like, well, it's sort of a BBC historical drama where. Mm-hmm you know, the TARDIS crew happens to pop in in the middle. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of anything they did that really made a difference. And I guess if maybe if Haroon hadn't encountered Barbara, maybe things would have gone differently and he might never have been reunited with his daughter. But, again, that's the stretch. You know, yeah. that's really... A, um, yeah, yeah, they really, uh, they really just kind of happened to be there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think that was part of the original concept, right? We'll, we'll have these historicals and people learn about history, but, but as they kind of figured out over time, you know, no, it really makes sense in Doctor Who that there's some Doctor Who element to the story, right? And we've already seen the Time Meddler, mm-hmm. which was a perfect example of that, right? Where it's historical, but he, the Time Meddler is trying to screw around with history and they're stopping him and, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. And especially if, if there's any weight to my current pet theory that the TARDIS has some kind of agenda, which is why it's dumping them <laughs> at all these... Random spots, apparently random spots throughout mm-hmm. history and space. You know, it isn't clear what may have been accomplished by this particular Yeah, they didn't visit. fix anything. They didn't, yeah. So I guess we come to, with all that, would you consider this worth watching for a modern audience? Um, hmm. Boy, that's a... That's a tough one. I... Well, I mean, setting... Setting aside the question of the reconstruction versus the live action, uh, I mean, if we say say we had all four episodes in live action, would I recommend it then? 
I don't know. On this one, I'm going to say I'd recommend maybe the second two episodes. <laughs> if you, if, if you, if you just wanted, you know, the uh, core Doctor Who experience, I'd say you could get by with the second half of the story arc. Although, overall, I mean, I would like to see, uh, to have seen, I guess, all of the episodes in live action just. You know, for costumes, and there are some good actors in here. It is a, an interesting period of history. I think, if anything, they they probably could have gone more into the uh, yeah. religions and politics and you know, what was going on at the time. They sort of uh, trod lightly around a lot of it, I think, uh, between the uh, not really explaining what the... Muslim side of things believed or was defending or any of that. Um, and then they brought up the Pope, where, of course, the BBC that was making this was in an Anglican England, <laughs> uh, which didn't happen till centuries after the crusade. So it would have been nice to see them draw out more of that, I guess. You know. But again, you know, if they were aiming it at children, there's only so much of that stuff that children can absorb. <laughs> But overall, I'd say half recommendation. Yeah, <laughs> you could you could watch the whole thing if you really like the show. If not, I'd say you know probably the last, even maybe just the last episode for that matter. Although, uh, yeah, yeah, probably the last episode would be enough to give you a good taste of it. Mm -hmm. um, and for this story, uh, a taste might might be enough because as we said the it's kind of a passive story for the TARDIS crew they right. don't don't end up having a lot of uh, stuff that they actually make a difference with <laughs> yeah. but there are fun points too Vicky being mistaken for a boy and all that so yeah. I mean you know it's I think where I come down is in terms of a BBC production with some amazing actors who would go on to be important actors and, you know, again, that kind of Shakespeare feel and everything. I think it can be worth watching. As a Doctor Who story, I just I just don't think it's really a Doctor Who story. I mean, even we look mm -hmm. at like the Aztecs, you know, which was one of the, if not the first, uh, historical. And again, they were a real part of that and they changed things and Barbara was a god and, you know, this and that. <laughs> and and, you know, here, just just nothing. Just nothing happens. They have no impact whatsoever. So I would just say it's not really a Doctor Who story. It's just a BBC historical, um, which in itself can be interesting. And I love the actors and, mm -hmm. the, and, and the writing and everything. But it's just not what I would consider a Doctor Who story. So that's, that's where I come down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Hartnell, aside from ingratiating himself initially with Richard, um, he doesn't even really do any anything particularly who-ish, mm -hmm. I don't think. Yeah, what does he yeah. do in the whole thing? He does nothing. I mean, again, in terms of impact, <laughs> just absolutely nothing, yeah. Um, so, okay, well, there you have it, whatever you want to <laughs> make of that. And probably we're on to the next Doctor Who next time, or maybe it's a host just, you know what? We have no freaking idea. <laughs> <That's fine. We're> <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> 
We're we're playing it by ear. Yeah, we're so out of sync in our <laughs> recording versus production that uh, you you and us will be surprised by whatever shows up next week. <laughs> we will see you then. All right. Yeah, and one of the things he says to himself in here is, oh, because they're stolen, it's okay if I steal them, which, you know, which gets him off the hook. It also reminds me of uh, Batman Begins, right? In the beginning, Christian Bale is in, you know, his character is involved in stealing stuff, but it turns out he's stealing it from his own company, right? So it's. No. See, I never saw that one. I saw The Dark Knight ah, or okay. whatever one had Heath Ledger in it. I, yeah. That's the one I uh, saw. One, one of those topics on our list is to like you know watch the whole history of Batman films. So maybe one of these days. Oh we'll yeah, <laughs> yeah. That could uh, we could we could do a lot of episodes on Batman at this point. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll narrow it down to uh, you know the the ten high, most highly regarded Batman films. Well, but we got to include. The I think it was the first actual film where they had the shark repellent and stuff. You remember? <laughs> oh, is that the '60s Adam yeah, West Batman? Yeah, well, yeah, sure, so. we'd have to. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. uh, of course we'd have to do that one. And '89 Batman. That's uh, that's my favorite with uh, you know Jack Nicholson. <laughs> so, totally off topic. I haven't actually watched it yet, but um, you know, there's this very controversial Flash film because an actor in it has you know, been abusing women and doing other stuff. And, you know, it's really, really... But the Warner Brothers, I think, is doing the film, and, and they confuse people because they refuse to pull the film, even though the actor, you know, is, has now this terrible reputation. And mm. I guess they just released in the last day or two the first trailer for it, and people are like, oh, wow, this looks like it's going to be really good. So apparently one of the reasons they may have decided to go with it, even though the actor has all these troubles, is because... Because uh, it's supposed to be good, but apparently, his face doesn't say Michael. Um, so he played the '89 Batman. Um, Michael Keaton. Yeah, Michael Keaton reprises his role as Batman, and that's one of the things that people oh. are excited about. And apparently, it looks really good. So uh, maybe we should both look at this trailer after this. But <laughs> now, of course, who wonder- knows? But by the time this episode comes out, maybe the movie's been released and everyone knows all about it. Who knows? But. <laughs> I wonder if they'll have the uh, original Batmobile or the 89 Batmobile <laughs> in there, because that was a neat little car. Mm-hmm. Actually, I read today that some company is releasing a model of it, you know, just mm. just for decorating your mantelpiece or whatever, uh, that's like $715 or mm. something like that, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I mean, if if you got the, got the dough to spare... God bless you, but uh, that's that's a little out of my home decorating budget at the moment. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, takes all sorts. You fool!